Welcome to Tales from the Bridge. This is episode 62, and recently Sam, Marty, and myself sat down with Eric Choi and have a fantastic conversation. We hope you enjoy this one. Check out the show notes for links to Eric's work. We've got stuff going on in January, so stay tuned for more interviews and interesting conversations. All right, everyone's waiting for us. Let's make our way over to the bridge. Today on Tales from the Bridge, we have Eric Choi, who I met at a space policy conference at Western University in London in September. Uh, and uh, I was introduced to him professionally because Eric works for GHGSAT, that's Greenhouse Gas Satellite, uh, which is a super interesting company and uh, out of Montreal, and, and, and I hope we're going to talk about that. But then uh, when he was introduced on stage for his panel, the, the, the person that introduced him also said, and Eric has also just published his uh, first collection of science fiction short stories. So... Boom, there we go. That was amazing. So I reintroduced myself and invited him on the show uh, to talk about both science fiction and science fact, which is uh, something we also do on the show. So welcome uh, welcome to Tales from the Bridge, Eric. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Marty. Thank you so much. And as I said, as I recall saying when uh, you emailed me about this, I approached this with a little bit of trepidation because I had a look at your list of previous guests and I find myself a little bit intimidated. I don't hold a candle to a lot of the other people that you've been fortunate to have on this show, but it's going to be, I think, uh, fun to, to chat and uh, I look forward to it. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Oh, well, we're really happy to have you, Eric, and, and I appreciate the flattery. We, we do like flattery uh, whenever we can get it. Um, <laughs> we've had some, we've been lucky to have some big names, but, um, but we've also had a pretty diverse set of, of science fiction creators uh, on the show and scientists. And so uh, I think our listeners are very broadly interested uh, uh, from what I can tell. So, um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, so uh, let me just go right ahead and say uh, your book, which has just been published. It's called Just Like Being There. Uh, it's a collection of, I believe, 15 short stories, uh, which right, you've written, yes. I imagine, over many years uh, since the first one was. Uh, uh, there's a great afterword after every story where you sort of tell us some more about the science in the story and where it came from and some of the history. And I know the, the first story you wrote as an undergrad, was it, at the University of Toronto? So, um, as Marty has pointed out, uh, I got started writing through a a contest and, uh, it's a competition that's now called the the Dell Magazines Award. And this is something that was uh, put together, uh, at the time by Rick Wilbur, Sheila Williams, and the late Gardner Dozois as a way of encouraging and incentivizing young writers to, uh, to get into the, to the genre. So... I actually entered the contest, and it was called the Asimov Award back in the day. I was the first recipient of the award in the first year that it was offered, which, you know, to this day blows my mind. And I, 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 I can't, it's kind of unfathomable that that it happened. But the result of that was uh, the short story dedication, which uh, opens uh, appropriately opens my collection, uh, Just Like Being There, that uh, was just published really by the the academic publisher, Springer Nature. Uh, I guess it would be last year now, we're in, we're in 2023. And perhaps that's 
a bit of a remarkable fact as well is, you know, I, I originally had no idea that Springer, which is better known, of course, as a scientific and academic publisher, in fact, has a science and fiction line. They, they have a, a science fiction line of books. And uh, this was mm. my collection was printed under that uh, that imprint. So just like being there is a collection of your short stories. Is that correct? That's correct. And right. was there sort of a couple standout stories for you? And and, and what were you talking about? Like, you know, when, you know, we, we love the idea of introducing emerging authors and you've emerged clearly. So we're a little late to the party, but, but when you look at that, uh, at Dragon and the Stars, what are a couple of key stories and, and some elements that went into them? That's a difficult question, actually. It's uh, kind of like saying, you know, which child or which relative you you like or love the most and you know all, all of the stories span the you know many years of my my writing career and each is a, a a snapshot of a point in time of where my headspace was and uh you know what inspired me or what was even in the scientific literature at the time that might have in, influenced me I, um, I I will say though that um, the the collection just like being there is actually uh, a subset of my stories. So th- there's 15, and by the nature of uh, Springer Nature, the, the publisher, and again that you know traditionally or primarily they are a, a scientific and academic publisher. So this collection was actually focused exclusively on my hard SF and alternate history stories. And that was also the rationale to providing the afterwards uh, to each of the tales where I delve into a little bit of the background, the history and the engineering, the science that is illustrated as, uh, as part of the story. So um, in addition to hard SF, um, believe it or not, I've actually uh, delved into uh, a little bit of horror. Um, I tried my hand at comedy once. Uh, this was a collaborative effort with uh, Joseph McGinty in uh, Derek Newman Stills' anthology, We Shall Be Monsters. And this was uh, a collection of stories uh, inspired by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So the story that Joe and I wrote was called A Postmodern Prometheus, and it was intended to be a um, a, a humorous take where there's a modern day Victor Frankenstein that is struggling to find or raise funding to, to be able to actually build this, this monster. <laughs> and uh, that actually turns out to be the most difficult part of, uh, of the enterprise. So I, I, I've tried to um, write, uh, I've, I've written that, uh, you know, an attempt at humor. And I actually have, I've written a story uh, over pandemic, a pandemic, um, you know, for all the terrible suffering that it has inflicted, um, in some ways, for some authors like me, has been actually quite uh, positive. There has been a positive aspect from the standpoint of focusing, um, you know, and, and getting some productive writing done. I do have an unpublished story that has uh, elements of uh, fantasy and um, and uh, Inuit folklore in it that I hope to, I hope perhaps might see the light of day at some point. Wow, that all sounds great. Uh, I look forward to the next collection. Um, <laughs> now, uh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're also writing other things. Uh, when I started reading this collection, I was like, oh, this guy's really into hard sci-fi. <laughs> um, and it is. It's a very hard science fiction. And like you say, alternate history. Um, Raise the Nautilus, uh, the second story, I think, in the collection is a great little piece of alternate history. And um, 
and uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very specific genre and it's full of science and it's full of engineering and it's full of facts. And, you know, you really draw, like you said, your inspiration from the literature um, and then you explain it. So each story I found really uh, educational, you know, really mind opening. Uh, I haven't finished all of them. I actually just read uh, From a Stone uh, just now, just before this interview, which I really, really liked. It's a it's a first contact um, story about the discovery of an artifact. Uh, and it sort of addresses this notion of, you know, what would we find, what would be evidence of intelligent life if we found an artifact or a signal? Um, you know, what, there are regular things you point out, you know, there's hexagonal tunnels in this, in this asteroid and well, bees, you know, make hexagonal tunnels, uh, and they're, that's life, but it's not necessarily intelligent life. I mean, it's a certain kind of intelligence, I guess, a social intelligence, um, and I love the resolution here, and I just want to tell people about it because I thought it was quite lovely. Uh, you know, the the astronauts that are exploring these tunnels in a in a in an asteroid get to the middle, and there's basically a little cubby hole, and in that cubby hole is a sequence in a placed in a circle, a sequence of of stones, which increase. Each stone is twice the mass of the one before it, and I thought this was a beautiful little uh, I don't know element of this. Not only is it twice the mass but it's twice the diameter and if you think about it right uh, twice the diameter right doesn't mean it's going to be twice the mass if it's the same density so it must be an engineered you know thought through carefully right that each each stone must also become less dense because mass scales as volume uh which is you know radius cubed rather than just radius so if the radius is double and the mass is double that means you know and then th that you've changed the density and so it's a great little signal right it's a it's a sign of intelligence um to simply find that so that was a great story thank you for that Th thank you so much um so a few years ago that story was uh reprinted in an anthology called Far Orbit that was edited by Bascom James. And uh, Bascom wrote these little intros to each of the stories. And the one he wrote for From a Stone floored me because he compared it to Rendezvous with Brahma, hmm. um, which I, I, I think probably, <laughs> you know, so, sort of swelled my head, you know, for, for at least a day. But uh, <laughs> that, was, that was tremendously gratifying. The, the other aspect of that story that I was trying to convey, and, and this sort of ties back to my career and my interest in, in real life space exploration, is I was in fact very much influenced by one of my favorite nonfiction books, which is A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. And this, I really consider Chaikin's book to be the, the definitive history of the Apollo missions of the late 60s and, and 70s. And if you remember back in the 90s, there was a, a wonderful HBO miniseries called From the Earth to the Moon that had its basis in Andrew Chaikin's book. Mm -hmm. So what impressed me about the book was the the geology and the science that they were attempting to do on the moon but under tremendous constraints that you know if you remember the apollo program as obviously being a wonderful engineering and and scientific achievement but that that was of course not its genesis its genesis was a cold war competition with the then soviet union and the point was really just to send people to the moon and bring them back. And th that's exactly what Kennedy said. And, and that's all they were meant to do. So 
you know, the, the science that, that came out of it, uh, while important, was in some ways secondary to the main mission objective. And indeed, there was only one scientist who ever made it to the moon in the Apollo programs, and that was Dr. Harrison Schmidt, the geologist on the last mission, Apollo 17, in, in 1972. Actually, we just recently passed the, the 50th anniversary of, of Apollo 17. But, you know, they had so little time to do science on the surface of the moon because they were constrained by their resources. They were constrained by orbital dynamics. They were constrained by, by the, by the hardware that, you know, even Apollo 17, they, they, they barely spent three days on the surface. And, you know, you can imagine trying to explore a landmass the size of the continent of Africa in three days no, that, that it's not going to happen. So, so this sort of hit and run science, doing the best we can, that was part of the tension that I tried to convey in the story from a stone. So, the 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 scenario there was that this was a spacecraft that was actually at the end of another mission. So things like fuel and consumables were already low, and they weren't expecting to make this amazing discovery on this asteroid and gosh we need to explore this further we need to learn more but then they have to leave because they they, they, just, they just can't stay they don't have the the, the resources to, to, to stay and and they leave behind all these unanswered questions and, and and mysteries and and at the end what they're exploring really does is really raising more questions than answers. And I think, you know, that says a lot about, you know, the nature of progress and the nature of science as well. Mm -hmm. That's really great. Uh, Eric, can you um, tell our listeners a little more about aerospacewriter.ca? I'm just uh, browsing through the website and it's really well laid out. And there's so much here from technical writing to information on your your short stories. We're going to have a link uh, in the show notes for any listeners that want to check out Eric's website, but it, it's, it looks fantastic. Can you tell us about that? Because do you run that yourself, Eric? And is this... Um, I, 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 I do run it myself for, for better or for worse. Um, this is probably a strange thing to say for somebody who allegedly has an engineering background, but... Uh, no, I'm. <laughs> I don't consider myself that savvy when it comes to maintaining a website. So, Tristan, if you thought it was okay, I'm. I'm very glad, gratified. It was actually my good friend, uh, the, the writer and editor Mark Shanebloom, who actually originally set it up for me. But I do maintain it myself, and so you know, on, on the website you can uh, find sort of the latest and greatest news of what I've been up to, uh, synopses of my short fiction. Uh, links to various interviews and presentations I've done over the years, including uh, this one, uh, presumably, in, in, in short order. And um, yeah, so, so some links to some of the, the, the technical and engineering type of writing that, uh, that I've done in the past as well. So Aerospace Writer is actually my uh, social media handle as well. So you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram and uh facebook i just want to ask you about you know as a and this is something we debate about here about you know uh, between hard sci-fi writing and 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 so far as you know it, versus other styles you know fantasy oriented stuff and and um uh so 
for me, I, I'm I'm always a little harder on high on hard sci-fi because I, I I like a good story, and it, and you do a great job of finding a balance between the story and the science. It, does one take precedence over the other in your process? Like, do you find that you're they, they can be at odds with one another? Have you and and as a follow up, have you ever sort of uh, compromised the science for the story or? vice versa. I have compromised the science for a story. So actually the, the, the title story, just like being there, I describe uh, a type of instantaneous communications, basically, you know, the ansible that uh, Ursula Le Guin came up with. And there is a totally hand waving explanation for how that works. And I, I say it's based on quantum entanglement and, and reality. Um, that can't happen. We, we you cannot achieve faster than light communications with quantum entanglement because basically you, you would still be conveying information faster than the speed of light, and it just it just doesn't work that way. But I needed that uh, for for story purposes. Um, so 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 in answer to that, yes, I I have you know waved my hands uh, on occasion. Um, I, I try to minimize that though. Um, a lot of what I do is. I, I tried to do a lot of near future stuff. So that is in many respects, you know, quite challenging because reality tends to catch up with things. Um, so in the case of some of the older stories in just like being there, um, I did do some minor tweaks and revisions to, to some of the older stories, including from a stone and, the good news there is that I was pleasantly surprised to discover that uh, most of them held up pretty well. Where it didn't hold up is, for example, in the original publication of From a Stone, I, I had certain dates. I believe the story was, uh, or that we you know, discovered this particular anomalous asteroid in 2021, which uh, obviously was uh, an eternity ago uh, in, in pandemic years. So, you know, I had the simple expedient of just moving the dates to the right. And, you know, in, in my defense, I, I, I believe Bradbury did the same thing in, when the Martian Chronicles were, 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 were reissued. Yeah. But, you know, that, that tension, if, if you have between sort of story and, and science, I think between those those two things, you know, I and this is speaking to somebody who, you know, got started reading that really really old school stuff of, you know, Clark and and Asimov and and even going back to Jules Verne in in my, um, you know, elementary school days, is you know I, I love story so, sorry idea based stories where there's just something cool there but at the end of the day it, it, it still has to be a story mm. um it, it has to have a beginning a middle and an end so if push came to shove between those two elements i would care i would prioritize rather you know plot and story oh, well sure i mean fiction is in the in the title of the genre right i mean i think that's always forgivable but it's it's um but with hard sci-fi writers, you're almost it's it's sometimes hard to tell where things kind of get inventive and where they don't. And and I, I sort of like I enjoy sort of uh, trying to figure out where that point is, particularly as, as a non-science person. And it's often 
the stuff that I think is sort of far-fetched that someone's like, oh no, that's real. And then, you know, so it, it, to me, that's always sort of what blows me away when we sort of dig into this. In terms of your, your process, do you sit down, do you sit down, are, do you grow it out of a scientific concept or do you have like a story idea and then you start introducing your science knowledge into that? It could be both. Um, so when, when Marty mentioned uh, from a stone, that idea of sort of a, a binary message of basically engineered stones, um, you know, each facet or dimension of the stone being, you know, you know, d- double the next, uh, that actually came from an, an article that I had read in the publication of the Planetary Society. Um, so so th- there, there are cases where, uh, you know, the idea comes first. Um, the, the, uh, on the other mm-hmm. side of that is, uh, is could be that I, I've come up with a story that, that I want to tell, and I sort of do the research after the fact to, you know, to either set the background of the premise or, or to move things along. In terms of the process of my writing, uh, I, I tend to be quite methodical, and this probably is, is an artifact of my background as an engineer and you know before I perhaps before I say more about that uh, I should caveat that writing obviously as a process of, of creativity is deeply individualized and deeply personal so anything I say just means that it's the way I happen to do it it's neither right nor wrong, and it may not may or may not work for for other people. Um, if, if there might be, you know, emerging writers who, who who might be be listening to this, but I guess perhaps befitting of my engineering background, I do tend to be quite rigorous. So I actually uh, plot out stories, even short stories, to to a great degree of detail. So I, I don't have an example for you right now, but I will literally have sticky notes where I've scrawled out. I've sketched out scenes and then I'll move the sticky notes around and, you know, there, you know, what is the flow of things? What happens next? I, um, I keep little, you know, spreadsheet notes of, of characters, um, you know, to, to keep things like their, their personal history backgrounds and, and, and things consistent. And a little more recently, I've been also doing that to just to sanity myself to make sure that things like, uh, background and ancestry and gender that I'm having good diversity in, in my characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I've got, uh, you know, I tend to keep, you know, extensive files on a folder somewhere of, of research notes. Um, I tend to be a bit old school there that, you know, despite everything, I tend to still print things out and, and highlight and scribble all over them. That's uh, something that hasn't quite, uh, quite been replicated, but, um, I actually don't start a first draft of a story until I've got that plot outline in place. And and the other thing that's that's again part of my own personal process is I need to have a title before I'll start writing. And hmm. it doesn't it, it could purely be a working title, most often it is. And the plotting that I described with the with, with the sticky notes it doesn't mean that I pedantically stick to that, but I, I do feel that I need to have that structure before I can before I can even 
start writing a first draft. And, and, and then I emphasize again that this is my personal way of doing things. It's neither right nor wrong for anybody else. And ultimately, as a creative process, every writer does their own thing, you know, whatever works for them. No, I, I love hearing about the process, and that makes total sense. I mean, that's how you avoid a plot hole, right? Or, 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 or some. Well, it's it, it's cheating. It's it, it's cheating to an extent that I can claim that I've never had writer's block. <laughs> that when I write the first draft, I just go from from beginning to end, and the reason is because I've cheated. Is the writer's block had already happened at the outlining stage with the sticky notes. I think Neil Gaiman also says, you know, there's a different kind of cheating that goes on when you write a story. You write the story, and then you go back through it, and you make it sound like you knew what you were doing all along. Uh, <laughs> you put in all those things that you found out at the end uh, throughout the whole thing. So, yeah, that's what makes a... I, I I would uh, I would tend to to agree with that. I mean, I mean, you know, who who am I to disagree with Neil Gaiman? But um, my process of writing is when I do get to that first draft, I just barrel through from from beginning to end. I do not revise at all at first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, it, I just go. My objective is to produce words and produce pages. Uh, once I've got it done, it's done. I close the file and I try to leave it behind me for for at least a week. Uh, I try to give myself some cooling off. And then I come back to it and I try to approach it as a reader. So, you know, I'll put it on my Kobo or, um, you know, back in the day I would print out a copy and I would sit on the couch where I normally read and try to look at it with uh, with fresh eyes. And then that's when the revision process Start. So, so stories are not so much written, but they're very much rewritten. And how do you fit it in? Uh, I mean, you're a busy guy. You're a professional. Uh, you're the director of business development for, for GHGSAT. Uh, I'm sure you've got a very full schedule. Do you just fit it in sort of anywhere? Do you write on the bus? Do you wake up on Saturday morning and that's your time? Or how, how do you do that? I don't do it very often. So, um, I'm, I'm hardly the most prolific writer. It's probably why I've never churned out a novel, for example. Mm. So, you know, I've had, uh, I've had just over 20 stories, 21 stories published now, um, which in the grand scheme of things is, is not that impressive, but yeah, I, I do try to, to balance, um, uh, you know, a, a rather busy career, a very privileged career in in my dream of of being in in the space sector. But when it comes to writing, it uh, frankly it it becomes a, another job and another another task. So um, when I've got a writing project going, uh, I will print out uh, a calendar, or I'll get a calendar, or, or whatever a physical calendar. And I will write down the number of pages I've written on, on a given day. And the, the, the goal there is that I must write at least one page a day or I don't go to bed. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's it. And it, it, it could be gibberish, right? You know, as I said earlier, I, I sort of barrel through things the first way around, but mm-hmm. Um, that's the discipline that I feel that I need uh, to, 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 to actually schedule writing in with, with other things and then make myself do it. And, and no, don't get me wrong. This is, this is enjoyable. I, 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 I love writing, but it is 
work and it does take a, a degree of planning and dedication to to squeeze it into to everything else that uh, any writer would have in their lives. That, and that's common of a lot of the, the authors that we've spoken with is that they schedule their writing time and they treat it like they're going to work. They're disciplined about about producing work. So it, it, it's it's uh, um, it's it sounds you've just you've spoken in very familiar terms. I think to, to the three of us here. It's uh, um, I mean that's what it takes to produce work. And as you said, you've been doing it for some time. And if we can go back just to 2011. Uh, a book uh, you were you were uh, an editor a co-editor on the dragon and the stars which was the first collection of science fiction and, and fantasy stories written by authors of the chinese diaspora and it won the 2011 aurora award in the uh, best english related work category could you tell us a little bit about that experience that was something that sort of just jumped out at me and i was hoping you could dig into for us well, that was uh, a lot of fun, and that is one of the projects that uh, I I was most proud of. So uh, it was uh, very much a, a collaborative experience with uh, my good friend, uh, also an editor and author, Derwin Mack. And uh, it came about because Derwin was, uh, I'm trying to remember which world science fiction convention, which world con this was. This was the one in Yokohama. Um, could that have been something like 2007, I believe? And uh, given that he was in the Asia Pacific for that world con, he had the opportunity to meet a lot of science fiction writers and, and academics from China and other Asian countries. And as a result of that, uh, Derwin and I and Tony Pai and Melissa Yuan Innes were interviewed for a, a Chinese publication sort of describing, you know, Canadian science fiction authors of, of Chinese ancestry. And so shortly after this happened, uh, Derwin and I had a dinner uh, appropriately at a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown here in Toronto. And I honestly don't remember who blurred this out, but one of us did. And we, we, we looked at the, 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 the print of the, the article and one of us said, you know, these authors here would make one terrific anthology. And, uh, and that's how it happened. So we, we had no idea of, of how this would go about, but Fortunately, we are blessed to have uh, very good friends in the field. And in this case, the wonderful, wonderful uh, Julie Cherneda, who you must get on the bridge yes. uh, as another example of somebody who is a scientist and a, and a, and a speculative fiction writer. Uh, because of uh, her contacts at DAW and Techno Books, uh, we were able to get this uh, this project underway. And I said, this is uh, something that Derwin and I are, are, are tremendously proud of. And, um, you know, we, we would like to think that it, it was, to our knowledge, the first dedicated collection of uh, speculative fiction written by Chinese ancestry authors in in the diaspora outside of of China. So we are, you know, quite pleased and quite uh, proud of this project. Thank thank you for bringing it up. Uh, it's it's on my it's just made our, our, our my reading list. I was just going through your website now and, and and saw that jump out at me. And what a great opportunity to to 
gather your favorite stories together under one under one title under one roof you know and and to to bring that forward it's a fantastic opportunity what's now what's next for you what do you what what do you you know when you look at where your what your trajectory is and where you want to go next what's uh can can you break anything here is it is you know we don't want you to 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 reveal secrets if you've still got things sort of tucked away and we totally understand that but is is there some can you give us some hint as to what we might expect from you next well i I really consider myself first and foremost a, a short fiction writer, uh, being a, a writer not only of short fiction but of physically short stature as well. I'm <laughs> sort of making a hand gesture here. You're not going to be able to see this in in the audio. Um, I, I really think that uh, that that's my passion and and that's my strength. Um, you know, I have outlined a novel that uh, I may or may not get to one of these days. I'd, I'd love to do another anthology of some kind, either a collection of, of my own work or um, some themes that I've been kicking around with, with some different publishers. But um, again, first and foremost, I, I do consider myself, you know, that, that, that the form that I'm most comfortable is, is the short form. So, um, I think I mentioned this earlier that uh, you know COVID and the pandemic has you know ha- has been a, a terrible tragedy for, for for too many people. But from from the writing standpoint, it, it's it, it's had some positives. So um, you mentioned "Raise the Nautilus" that was written during pandemic. Um, I've a story last year that I was quite pleased with called "A New Brave World." So this was in a collection of stories about interstellar travel called Brave New Worlds. And uh, forgive me, it's a little bit confusing because the, the titles are similar, but the, the premise of my story is the civilization that was portrayed in Aldous Huxley's famous 1932 novel, Brave New World. What if that level of technology had somehow achieved interstellar spaceflight? So, so that's what that story is about. And Looking ahead to uh, 2023, uh, which uh, <laughs> I'm still getting used to this. So this this will take me days, but um, you know. So this year now, uh, I look forward to a few more stories coming out. So I just uh, submitted a story to uh, Tony Pye and Stephen Kotowich for one of their upcoming anthologies. The anthology is is called will be called Game On, and this is an anthology that will be uh, speculative fiction stories about games uh, of various kinds. So I've written a story for them called Random Access Memory, uh, which has to do with uh, video slot machines and uh, a very unusual thing that certain people experience when they're playing this particular video slot machine at this, uh, th- this casino. Um, I'm also very pleased that uh, next year there is going to be uh, an anthology called Life Beyond Us. Uh, this is an anthology that's being put out by the European Astrobiology Institute and the Laxa Media Publisher. Uh, this is Lucas Law's company in, in Alberta. And this will be a collection of uh, stories about uh, astrobiology, so so life in outer space, and very similar to just like being there, uh, each story will be accompanied by uh, an essay that is written by a practicing scientist in that particular field. So I'm very happy that uh, I will have the opening story in uh, in this uh, Life Beyond Us collection. Uh, it's going to be called Hemlock on Mars, 
and it's um, it, it's a story of a, a bit of a different twist of the issue of whether we find life on Mars or perhaps we inadvertently bring life there and you know what uh, w- what is to be done about that and so I'm looking forward to that and um, there's going to be a uh, uh, so I've been published. I've been very fortunate to have been published in in analog uh, a number of times, which is obviously the so, so, sort of the nirvana for for you know any hard SF geek like me. But I will have um, my fifth story in analog, which is uh, which will be called "Beware the Glob," and it will be about a dangerous extraterrestrial creature that is unleashed from its frozen arctic slumber by uh by climate change and uh if that sounds anything like a 1950s movie it's uh it's kind of uh kind of in- intentional that way so the thing um, from outer space um well i just just uh, being careful with copyrights here but i was uh i i was a, a bit of a fan you know when, when i was a kid there was a film called the blob that yes. absolutely terrifying. With St- Steve McQueen was a little too old to play a teenager by by that point, and uh, I actually make reference to that in, in the story. But um, it, it was a story that uh, Trevor Chakri, the the editor of uh, Analog, and I bonded on because you know, boy, you know, I, I I hid under the bed when when I saw that movie because you know, surely you know that blob was going to go after a little kid like me, and and I, I certainly related to that. So we were, you know, both mutually terrified by that uh, by by that uh, classic horror film, and uh, so so I you know decided to do a little bit of a hard SF uh, twist uh, on that one. And so that's going to come out in analog later this year. Oh, very, very cool. cool. That's exciting. Wow. Oh, that's all really exciting. Hey, I, you touched on uh, an interesting topic that actually we just posted to our Facebook group, or I just did. Um, I mean, the topic that you touched on was contaminating Mars, right, with life. Yeah. And we live in, uh, right now, there's, as I gather, a pretty... Uh, kind of a revolution, right? We're living in this time when we're realizing microbiology is just so much richer than we ever knew. We're finding microbes everywhere. We're finding them in the stone. You know, there are microbes that, whose metabolism eats rock, doesn't even need uh, oxygen. You know, there's there's microbes in volcanic vents. There's microbes on clouds, apparently. There's microbes everywhere. And so the, the, the survivability of, you know, the, the durability of life I think we're learning is extremely uh, pervasive. And, and, and if we do go to Mars or if we go to another planet, um, our chances of contaminating, if we're especially if we're looking for you know, extraterrestrial life, our chances of contaminating that planet are pretty big. Um, and so it sort of, you know, it sort of really affects the whole dialogue and conversation for me suddenly about the value of human exploration. If we go somewhere looking for life to explore there, uh, but it turns out that we're just so dangerous to <laughs> these pristine places that the astronauts will ultimately have to just lock themselves inside a sealed hermetic room, um, you know, that really affects the value of, of sending people there. Why, why send people there if they're just going to sit in a bubble and, and operate remote controls uh, for machines that we could, you know, operate from here? 
Uh, and your your fiction addresses that, I think, a lot. You know, you, you've thought a lot about this and you work in the space industry. What I'd love to just hear your thoughts about, like, the value of robotic versus human exploration today. Well, it, it's so interesting that you bring that up, Marty, because uh, my upcoming story, Hemlock on Mars, is precisely on that topic. So there's something called planetary protection, and this is... Um, uh, it, it, it's a it's a set of agreements or protocols that have been agreed to by most of the major space agencies of the world, um, and it reflects uh, compliance with a clause in the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which says basically, you know, thou shall not contaminate other bodies in the solar system with harmful material and the reverse of that, that's forward contamination, that there shall be no back contamination as well, that you're not going to bring anything harmful or dangerous back from space. I guess the, uh, the Andromeda strain syndrome. Right. So what we do is when we send these spacecraft to places like Mars and you know, potentially to other places in the solar system of astrobiological potential, like say Europa or, or, or Titan, is um, there are actually protocols in place to clean or sterilize as best we can these uh, this hardware before we send it. So in my aerospace career, I was very privileged to have worked on a Mars lander mission called Phoenix, which for which Canada provided uh, a laser sensing, an atmospheric laser sensing instrument. And I was very privileged as part of my early career to, to have worked on that. But, you know, planetary protection protocols were, were first and foremost on that project. So things had to be wiped down with uh, disinfectant, with uh, alcohol wipes, and then, you know, bio assays had to be taken. So basically swipes were taken and then things were cultured to see how many spores actually came out. And, you know, there are criteria of, you know, how many spores per square meter are allowed before something, you know, can be deemed suitable or, or, or sufficiently uh, cleaned and decontaminated to, to go to Mars. So the, the story that uh, that's going to come out in, in the Life Beyond Us anthology this year, my story, Hemlock on Mars, uh, deals precisely with planetary protection and what might happen if we suddenly discovered that we actually didn't decontaminate the spacecraft to the level that we thought we did. So what do we do about it then? This thing is on its way to Mars. Um, you know, what's uh, what's to be done? So you know, you know, please please read the story to, to find out. But um, the, 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 this whole uh, discussion between the, the the relative merits of of human versus robotic space exploration that was actually the the central. Uh, premise of the title story of my collection, just like being there. So um, the story was originally published in one of Julie Chernada's um, anthologies. It was called Tales from the Wonder Zone. This was a collection that she put together with the idea of using science fiction to illustrate what were then um, basically uh, curriculum topics in the uh, Ontario uh, elementary school and high school science curriculum. So at that time, there was a space exploration unit, I believe, in in something like grade six or something. And so um, this story was, was very much uh, examining that. The premise being that after a series of, of tragedies, 
we, we kind of call it quits and say, you know, this thing of sending people into space, maybe it's just too dangerous and, and we should do it all with, with robots. And then this is what led to that hand-waving, Marty, I talked about earlier, the need for this instantaneous communication with the, with the spacecraft, because this is one of the biggest impediments to, um, you know, until very recently when we ha- were starting to develop things like better autonomy and, and artificial intelligence, that the time lag uh, that's you know just a few seconds perhaps to the moon, but could be on the order of fifteen or twenty minutes going out to Mars, and you know on the order of hours out to the to the outer solar system. You know that would tend to argue that we really ought to have have people there, and certainly we've seen, for example, in the Apollo missions that that there is a capacity for for human beings to be curious and to and to make spontaneous d- discoveries, but. Even then, you know, the, the one time that we sent people out of low Earth orbit in Apollo, um, you know, going back to some of my earlier comments, their time was so constrained that they were almost biological robots, that they had very detailed procedures on their moonwalks, on their, on their EVAs, that you, know, you go here at such a time, you, you dig this and you drill this far and, and you get this sample. Um, that a lot of the benefits that we would have supposed for having human eyes and ears on site didn't really materialize to the extent that we would have expected in the Apollo program. And, you know, maybe this will change as, you know, we head back to the moon and, and, and go on to Mars. But certainly there are other challenges associated with sending people in space. And Marty, you alluded to some of them that in some of the cases of wanting to decontaminate these spacecraft going to Mars, uh, you know, for example, the, the, the Viking missions, the first uh, land, successful uh, soft landers in the 70s, uh, because they had astrobiological experiments, they, they, they actually went beyond the, the, uh, the sort of disinfectant wipes that I described for Phoenix. They actually did something called a dry heat microbial reduction, which was basically putting this thing in a humongous oven you know, at 150 degrees Celsius for like, you know, three hours at a time. Uh, this is obviously something that is not well recommended for, for doing to people. So, you know, these are the issues that we're going to have to tackle and, and deal with, you know, if we are to be you know serious about eventually sending people to, to Mars or other places in the solar system, as has been so often postulated in science fiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I gather something I've learned recently, there's part of what we're learning about microbiology and all these new sort of uh, classes of microbes is that there's lots of microbes that don't culture. So we look for everything by culturing it, uh, or we have until now, but there could be all sorts of things that are still left on there that, you know, evaded our cleaning techniques and we, we swab and we culture and they just don't culture, but they're still there. So there's a whole extra level, I think, of to do that. You know what, Brian, uh, sorry, Martin, Marty, rather, um, you know, the, the next time I write a story, you know, I'm going to have to tap your biophysics background here because I really should have talked to you before I, I wrote this story because you've basically outlined the whole story for me right there <laughs> because that is exactly what happens in in my story where there, it, it turns out that the contaminant is, is, is a microbial that does not culture. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's great. And then, you know, and then the next level, though, is like, if you send a human, they're just a, a walking bioreactor, right? Uh, 
if you just let them outside, any kind of accident, a tear in the suit, right, it just basically will release thousands and thousands of different microbes out there, and, and some of them might survive. And, and so it's a pretty complicated problem, um, you know, to, to or, or at least it's a high price to contemplate, right, the more you think about it for the, the improvisational ability of humans when they're there, especially when everything is so controlled that humans aren't given that improvisational uh, 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 ability anyway. And so, well, that was the experience during the Apollo program. Um, You know, my hope would be that, you know, if and when people go go to Mars and, you know, assuming that these issues of forward contamination and, and, you know, protecting any indigenous astrobiological biomes is, is resolved that, there'll be a lot more time, I hope, for people to be uh, doing science on Mm -hmm. on the surface of Mars than they did in Apollo on the moon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, since we're talking about science, uh, we've had you almost an hour here, and uh, and we haven't talked about GHGSAT yet, and I think it's a fabulous story that I'd love to share with our listeners. Um, So, G, I I don't know if I need... So, uh, by way of introduction, GHGSAT, it's a a satellite. It's a Canadian company. You guys have put up a satellite with uh, special infrared cameras. um, And the infrared cameras are basically, you know, able to detect wavelengths that that are very um, characteristic of chemical compounds. So, you can basically have this sort of chemical fingerprint from the spectra that you read uh, that, that can detect whether you're seeing carbon dioxide or methane, or I'm sure many other things. And so, and I'm surprised actually to learn that this is the first time we've done this. I would have thought we'd had satellites doing this for a long time. And so these satellites can now, you know, map the entire planet and see emissions. Um, and you made the news very quickly. I think uh, there's a couple big news stories with, um, uh, uh, you know, you were able to detect super emitters, basically super polluters out of Russia, I'm sure, uh, just to sort of quantify like how much how how much their factories or some of their factories are polluting compared to others. And then also you were able to detect the uh, the the explosion, the destruction, the sabotage, I guess, of uh, the Nord Stream pipeline, I believe. Um, yeah, the so Nord these Stream, are big right. stories. Uh, why don't you tell us some about tell us about the company? Tell us about your role and, and tell us about some of these stories. Well, um, so my day job is I'm director of business development at GHGSAT, and this is uh, a one of these new space, small and nimble new space companies that you've heard about. So it's headquartered in Montreal, and uh, we actually have six satellites in space right now doing global monitoring of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, specifically methane. Uh, we've got six more satellites uh, launching this year. So we'll have uh, we'll have a good dozen up there by uh, by this time uh, by this time next year. Um, what makes uh, GHGSAT unique, and Marty, you're exactly right that uh, there are other satellites that measure greenhouse gases, but the difference is that the the previous satellites, uh, you know, Sentinel Five P, Tropomi, and and others, is that they look on a very broad scale and at very low resolution. So something like the Tropomi instrument on Sentinel-5P, it has a a swath or or, or view of about 2,500 kilometers across, but its pixel size is seven by five kilometers. So we've taken a bit of the opposite tact is we only look at a, a 12 by 12 kilometer patch, uh, 12 by 12 kilometer field of view. But within that, we have very high spatial resolution, less than 30 meters. And what this means is that we can attribute a leak 
right down to an individual facility, uh, like an oil pad or or a vent at a coal mine or a part of, of a landfill. And this is the part that's that that's that's never been been done before. And you know what really uh, amazes me about this is this is all being done by by, by a, a, an SME, a small Canadian company headquartered in Montreal with about a hundred employees. Uh, these are these little microsatellites that you've probably heard about. So it's not these big bus sized you no know, Hubble space telescope types of things. Our satellites are um, about 15 kilograms and they're about the size of a microwave oven and uh, and they're built in Canada. So our uh, our current batch of satellites was built uh, at my alma mater of the uh, University of Toronto, the Space Flight Laboratory. And you know what is really remarkable to me that this is a true Canadian success story because all of this technology came out of Canada. We're a Canadian company. Uh, the satellites were built uh, at the University of Toronto. Uh, the sensors, uh, the instruments, it's it's our design, it's our IP, but uh, they're built by a company called ABB in Quebec City. Uh, we have an airborne version of that instrument uh, that's built by Honeywell in, in Ottawa. And um, the, the, the ground stations uh, where we take the data down from our satellites are operated by an organization called Secor in, Saint, in, in, uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. So literally all of this is, is done in Canada, uh, except for the rocket launch. So, you know, our, for example, our most recent batch of three rockets went up on, on a SpaceX Falcon 9. Um, so we can do everything in Canada except uh, launch the satellites, and I understand there's there's people working on that too. Yeah, there's people yeah. working on that. So maybe in a few years' time, we'll have that option too. Yeah, apparently we're getting a launch site in uh, Nova Scotia or on the east coast somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Very cool. And and how does this make money? Who pays for this or do people buy the data or you're the business development manager <laughs> this right. is the question so for you we uh so, so so most of our clients are actually in the commercial sector so these would be operators of you know energy facilities you know oil and gas facilities landfill operators that they themselves actually have a very strong incentive to, uh, to 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 clean up and to stop the, the these methane leaks, um, both from the standpoint of of regulation, um, you know, also environmental activism, but ultimately uh, the the bottom line as well that especially nowadays with you know the geopolitical situation in Ukraine and others with uh, energy prices the way they are if you're leaking methane not only is that a terrible thing for climate change but that's basically like dollar signs you know flowing into into the atmosphere so you know not only are you doing the right thing by capping it is that you know now you recovered product that that you can sell and 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 make money at um we also uh, service the scientific community. So uh, GHGSAT is what's called a third-party mission of the European Space Agency, ESA. And what that means is that ESA procures our data and then makes it available for free to scientific researchers in, in Europe. And uh, very recently, we signed a contract with NASA for what's called to be evaluated under their commercial small sat data acquisition program. And at the end of that process, uh, the end of that evaluation process, uh, we hope similarly to have our data uh, widely available to the American scientific community as well. 
So one one thing I do want to know before we wrap up here is why have we seen such a, a jump in, in just getting stuff to space recently? And, and uh, I mean, we've had so much time. There's been many decades we've been able to do this. What is it about the last decade that has companies like yours popping up and us getting stuff into space and, and us exploring a little more? I, I think there's there, there's two aspects of that that have have enabled this. One is the realization that the the private sector has capabilities to offer that do not in any way replace government space programs, but 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 complement them. So that you have these two solutions coming together, doing things that that the, either of them alone would not have been able to do. And if we had more time, I could, you know, talk about the work we do with the, the Sentinel-5P ESA satellite, where they look at the wide view and, you know, they see an area of elevated methane, but they don't know the source. And it's like, hey, GHGSAT, have a look at that and find out where that, you know, where that elevated level is, is coming from. That's an example of the private sector and the public sector working together for the greater greater common good. And so, so, so that has really been embraced. You know, you know, commercial capabilities have been embraced. And then, related to that, is what has what has been done to reduce the cost of going in, in, into space. So, um, you know, s- say what you will of shall we say the personalities behind SpaceX, but what cannot be disputed is the, the tremendous impact that the SpaceX rockets, the Falcon rockets have had in lowering the barriers to entry and really democratizing space that even a, a small hundred person Quebec-based company can launch a fleet of, of, of to be able to afford to launch a fleet of, of microsatellites is is truly something that, uh, that that is revolutionary. Okay, I'll give Elon a pass for today. Uh... I did not mention him by name. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Eric. I think that's been an amazing conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. We loved hearing about your fiction, and uh, we look forward to more uh, and, and hearing your uh, reading your next collection. And um, thanks for being so erudite and well-informed. Always appreciate that. Well, Marty, Tristan, Sam, thank you so much. This has been Mm -hmm. uh, so much fun and, and just a great way to kick off 2023 for me. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Eric. We really enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Lots coming up in January, so stay tuned. The TFTB, once again... Thank you. Until next time.